Hey, uh, welcome. It's good to have each and every one of you this morning. Uh, I know we've got uh, a number of folks tuning in online, so special welcome to those of you who are tuning in online. I know we've got folks tuning in from northern Minnesota. I know we've got folks tuning in from southern Texas. Uh, we have had folks tuning in from South Korea uh, and other places around the world. And just a reminder, if you're traveling uh, throughout the summer, the fall, uh, you can always tune in online. So uh, welcome. Uh, we're so glad you are with us this morning. Uh, and those of you who are uh, live here this morning, uh, it's a beautiful day. Uh, it's a little bit windy, uh, but we're just batting down the hatches. We're going to spend some time in God's Word this morning. Uh, I hope you've got your Bibles this morning. Uh, if you do, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to open them up to 2 Timothy. We will be in 2 Timothy uh, for the next nine weeks. Uh, week by week, uh, we are going to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, uh, just looking at what God's Word uh, has to say to us. As Jeff said at the top of the service this morning, the name of this series we're calling is Leaving a Legacy. And the big idea behind uh, Leaving a Legacy or this sermon series uh, is, is how, how are you, is your influence going to continue to live on uh, long after they have lowered you into your grave? How are you going to impact the next generation? How are you uh, going to make sure that your faith or those things that are important to you today continue to live into the future. Oftentimes as we go through God's Word, we talk about uh, and look at passages that kind of lead us and guide us uh, through our day by day. But this is kind of a, a panning back, big picture question, and it really is inviting all of us to do some self-reflection uh, on how we are living our lives today so that future generations will continue uh, to be impacted by how we've lived our lives today. And of course, that is all about legacy. And this is the story uh, uh, really about the letter of 2 Timothy, where Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing a letter to his protege, Timothy. Very creative title of this book. 2 Timothy, we're going to start uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a beautiful day, for time together as your people, to look th through your word, to consider, God, what you might be saying to us. Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I write in my Bible, uh, and I would just want to encourage you uh, as you're bringing your Bible uh, to go ahead and write in your Bible. And you might even just want to write in 2 Timothy somewhere in the margin, leaving a legacy, or maybe how I'm going to leave a legacy for my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids, uh, how my influence is going to continue to live on. Let me give you a little bit of context for 2 Timothy. The Apostle Paul uh, was uh, teaching and leading and preaching in the ancient Mediterranean world. He had about a 15-year run on ministry. I've been in uh, ministry for about 25 years, so I've already spent more time in ministry than the Apostle Paul. Uh, he did uh, his ministry for uh, about 15 years. Over the course of his 15 years, he traveled about 20,000 miles and of course, this is back in the day before they had all the uh, ways of getting around. It was primarily walking or uh, going on ship. Uh, and this is what Paul did as he traveled from one village to the next. Paul visited nearly every major city uh, uh, in the Mediterranean Rim. 
uh, where he lived, and he planted churches, and he poured into people. He trained and equipped people, and after he had somebody trained and equipped, he'd move on to the next town, and he did that time after time after time over the course of 15 years. By the way, the Apostle Paul also, in his spare time, wrote about half of what we know as the New Testament. Uh, So uh, while I've been in ministry for 25 years, I haven't had any of my books published. Uh, I don't have any books published at all, and certainly not in the Bible. Uh, Paul was a a, a very influential, uh, accomplished leader in the life of the church. Now, what's going on as uh, as it relates to 2 Timothy is that Paul has found himself in jail. Many times Paul ended up in jail because he was doing what he wasn't supposed to be doing, and that is preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus. And this was a threat to all the leaders because Paul was talking about Jesus as being this king, this Messiah, this anointed one, this, this person who had come to sit on the eternal throne. And any emperor who heard this, that there was a new king in town, got really, really threatened. And the early church grew and grew and grew uh, through the faithfulness of the church and what they were doing and the ways in which they were proclaiming the gospel and living their faith in Jesus Christ. By 65 AD, there was a new emperor on the throne, a guy by the name of Nero, and Nero uh, was very threatened by the early church and all that was going on. And historians will tell us uh, that Nero was so threatened by what was going on with the church and with the Christians that he's, uh, they li- he likely set a fire in Rome. So he created this, uh, this, this dilemma, this, this, this tragedy, of course. And he said, I think the Christians set the fire in Rome. And so it gave Nero a perfect excuse to go ahead and just annihilate, arrest, round up all the Christians and kill them. So while things are going really, really well in the church, uh, things were also uh, very tumultuous. Uh, There's an ancient uh, historian, a guy by the name of Tacitus, and he was explaining what the early church looked like for the Christians. This is how he described kind of setting the scene for uh, life under Emperor Nero. Tacitus writes this, To their death and torture were added the aggravation of cruel derision and sport. For either they were disguised in the skins of savage beasts and exposed to the teeth of devouring dogs, or were hoisted up alive and nailed to crosses, or wrapped in combustible vestments and set up as tortures, as torches, that when the day set, they might be kindled to illuminate the night. So in, in ancient times, if you were a Christian, uh, it was very likely that you were going to die in one of three ways, that you were going to be uh, eaten alive by dogs, or you would be uh, set on fire um, and light up the nightlife, uh, or uh, you would be hung up on nailed to a tree. I think we can all agree that as Jesus followers today, we don't have things so bad, right? This is what it was like to be a Christian in the early church. These were very real things. And by the way, Nero let everybody know, this is what's going to happen to you if you call Jesus Lord and you don't call me Lord. So it was kind of a big deal, and this is what's going on. And so Paul is in jail. Now, Paul was not just in any jail. He found himself in jail many times. But this time, 
Paul was in jail for the very last time. This was it. 64, 65 AD. Paul is in jail. And he's in a jail in Rome. It's called the Mamertine Prison. And it wasn't a prison how you and I might think of prison. This, this Mamertine prison was actually an ancient uh, cistern. It was just a, a hole dug out of the ground where they had water in it. And in order to get into this jail, they had to lower the prisoner by a rope into this, this big rock uh, area. And you would just sit there and wait. And pretty soon they would call your name. They would call your number. They would bring you out and they would execute you. So this is what's going on in the life of Paul. This is the end of the road. And so Paul invites someone to come and write a letter for him, someone to transcribe for him. He says, hey, could you come over here? I want to write one more letter, one more letter, and I'm going to write it to Timothy, my protege. And so this is what is going on in 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter to Timothy and Paul's last letter to you and me. And so I want to ask you this morning, before I read Paul's last letter to the world, if you knew that you just had days to live and you were going to write a letter, what would you write? What would you say to your loved ones? And what would you say to the world? Well, this is what Paul says to Timothy and to us this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul begins his letter by saying, hey, it's me, Paul, writing this letter. Now, it's a little bit formal of a letter that he's writing to his protege, his friend Timothy. And we have to ask the question, why is Paul being so formal in this letter? Did Paul even know Timothy? And the answer is yes. Paul knew Timothy very well. They had gone on many mission trips together. They had spent a lot of time together. In fact, we learn in the New Testament book of Acts, when, when Paul invited Timothy to join his staff, he came to Timothy and said, hey, Timothy, I want you to come on my staff, but but before you do, we need to circumcise you. And so Paul actually participated in Timothy's circumcision. Paul knew Timothy, if you know what I mean. I've worked with a lot of people through the year. I have never known people in that way. They were intimately connected. They knew one another. So why is Paul writing this formal letter to Timothy? Timothy, it is me, Paul. Apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. That's pretty formal. We don't write like that today, do we? What if I were to call my kids and Logan picks up the phone and says, Hey, Dad, I'm like, Logan, this is your father. Graduate of St. Olaf College, Master of Divinity from Luther Seminary, Pastor of Faith Lutheran Church. Yeah, I know, Dad. I know it's you. We live together. We eat meals together. We spend time together. You're kind of strange, Dad. Right? But this is how Timothy, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy. It's this very, kind of very formal language. Why does Paul do this? Why does he write in this formal way? I think Paul is writing in such a way that he's trying to put emphasis 
on how important this letter is. Paul knows that he is about ready to die. And he, what I think what he's trying to communicate to Timothy is, Timothy, this is no ordinary casual email. This is not just a little piece of communication. I am writing to you. I want to communicate to you because I am an apostle called by God. And I have words to say to you because you are my protege and you are being called into ministry. And so I think it's Paul's way of saying, listen up, Timothy. I've got something important to say to you. Verse 2. To Timothy, my dear son. Now Paul is using language here, familial language. To be clear, Paul and Timothy were not blood related. And yet Paul calls Timothy his son, my dear son. If there's one thing we know about the early church is that they were highly relational. They were highly connected. The church in ancient times was not a, a pastor standing up front preaching a sermon to a massive group of people. It was one-on-one -on -one relationship. One person walking with another person. And they knew one another deeply, intimately, and they were connected as if they lived under the same roof together. This is the kind of relationship Paul had with Timothy, his protege. They didn't just know one another, but Paul said, you are like a son to me. The Apostle Paul is about 60 years old at this point in time. Uh, Timothy is about 40 so Paul is looking at him, he's writing to him, and he's saying, my son, I've got something I want to share with you, to speak with you, pay attention. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Christ our Lord. I love this, grace, mercy, and peace. Billy Graham once called these, this, this verse right here, the gospel in miniature. Because grace means you receive what you don't deserve. Mercy means you don't receive what you do deserve. And peace, that means that you are right with God. Isn't that beautiful? Grace, mercy, and peace. Like the old hymn writer says, it's well with my soul. And so Paul is praying this blessing on Timothy, his protege, his son, in these three words. Verse 3. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did. What Paul is saying here is this is nothing new. What I am about to share with you has been taught over and over and over. In fact, I stand on the shoulders of people who went before me. I stand on the shoulders of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I stand on those who have been so faithful long before I showed up on the scene and was called to be an apostle. And I love what Paul does as he's getting into this letter and teaching and encouraging and strengthening. He says, wait a second, I just want to remind you, the words I want to share with you are so much bigger than me. And I want to just look back for a moment and be reminded, all of us, of God's faithfulness in, in history and in time. And I think it's a great lesson for us today as we are facing struggles, as we are facing challenges, whatever is going on in your life. Sometimes one of the best things we can do is just look back and just look and reflect on God's faithfulness in our lives. 
I know for me personally, looking back is a wonderful gift and just saying, hey, I can see when God was with me here. I can see when God was with me here. I can see when God was with me here. And when we do that and we kind of take inventory of God's faithfulness in our past, we can go, I think he's going to continue to be faithful in the future. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know how things are going to turn out. But if he was faithful in the past, I think he's going to be faithful into the future. And it gives us this confidence to be people of faith, to look back, and then to step forward. I thank God whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you, with my prayers. Paul says, I've been praying for you, Timothy. I've been praying for you because I know it's been hard. I know things in your life are hard, so I pray for you. And so I want to ask you this morning, who's praying for you? Who's praying for you? And secondly, who are you praying for? I think it's all really important as Jesus followers that we're praying for someone and we're inviting other people to pray for us. Now, full disclosure, I don't pray for you all. I pray for Faith Lutheran Church every single day. And I know some pastors who will like have the roster of their church and they'll just pray through the names of the people in their church. That's not me. I don't do that. This morning, as I was praying for some of you, uh, I, I looked at my list. I have 27 people on my list, and I pray for very specific people in the life of the church. I don't pray for you all, and why don't I pray for everybody? I don't know. Some of you, God has just put on my heart, and so I pray for you. And some of you, I don't even pray for you, but I pray for your kids or your grandkids, I don't know why God has put some of your kids and your grandkids on my heart. And if I pray for you, I regularly tell you, hey, I pray for you. And you got to know those are not meaningless words. I really do pray for some of you every single day. And some of you share with me that you pray for me. And I hope those are not just empty words or just a, a way of uh, encouraging the pastor. But I hope if you pray for me, that you actually do pray for me. I think it's really important as we think about our legacy and how we are making influence into tomorrow, that we very intentionally are praying for some people in our lives. So who are you praying for? And who are you inviting to pray for you? Verse 4. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. So Paul says, hey, I remember that time you were really sad. I remember that time where you were actually crying. Paul says, remember that? Can you hear how relational this is? how deeply connected Paul and Timothy are. Paul brings up, I remember that time when you were at one of the lowest moments in your life. I remember your tears. A couple months ago, uh, I was having lunch with uh, a younger pastor. Uh, he's a great pastor. He's a fantastic pastor. He's a gifted pastor. He just happens to be about nine years younger than me. 
And so we get together every now and then, we share a meal, and I just kind of pour into him, and I just encourage him. And so we're, we're sitting down at this restaurant, and we're getting ready to order our food, and I just throw out the question, well, how are things going? He falls into a complete meltdown. He is getting teared up. He is like, Brian, I don't know what's going on in my church. I am really struggling. And all of a sudden, I'm just like, oh my goodness, I hit a nerve big time. And over the course of the lunch, he just poured out his soul. He poured out his heart and he is just weeping and he is just heartbroken. And then after some time of just being together and I tried to encourage him a little bit, I prayed for him right there on the spot. And this is what I think Paul is talking about. It's not just encouraging people or speaking to people, but it's just being with them emotionally in a very deep way. So who are you in relationship with in a very deep way? Who are you vulnerable with? Who are you trusting with the hardest challenges of your life? Who are the people that you trust that you can frankly cry with and just say, you know, I am really struggling. I think this is what Paul is talking about when it relates to being the church. Verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives also in you. So Paul says, let me just encourage you. I see faith in Jesus Christ living in you. And it's a good thing. It's a really good thing. And I praise God for your mom and your grandma who poured faith into you. What's missing in this story? What's missing in this text? Dad. Dad's absent. And I think here in the 21st century, we're like, yeah, of course. Dads are oftentimes absent, but this is, was not the way it was in ancient times. If dad was not present either physically, emotionally, or mentally in the life of a family, it was a really big deal. I think we've gotten so used to fathers not being around today that we're just like, yeah, dad's not here, so what? According to the U.S. Census, one in four children grow up with a father not in the home. According to the United States Department of Education, at some point in time, a child going through first through 12th grade, 39% will live in a home where there's not a dad. We have a crisis in our nation of fathers not showing up, not being present in the life of their kids. And kids who grow up with dads are twice as likely to get involved with drugs. They're twice as likely to end up in jail. This is a really big problem. When we are raising kids as a society and dads are not involved, bad things happen. And we're so used to it today. And I think with Timothy growing up without a father in the house, and we don't exactly know the details, but there's no mention of Timothy's father. And maybe that's why Timothy was crying. Maybe that's why Timothy was sad. Maybe that's why T Paul says to Timothy, remember, I remember when you were in tears. I don't know if Timothy was just one day like, my dad was a jerk. My dad wasn't around. He was just in this really dark place. And I could ask us this morning, how many of you grew up without a father 
either physically, mentally, or spiritually in your lives, I think a lot of hands would go up because we live in a day and a time where dads are absent. And we as a church, we've got to step up to help raise these young men and women in the faith of Jesus Christ. But I praise God for moms. I praise God for grandmas. Lois and Eunice, right? I can tell you 2,000 years from now, they are not going to be talking about Brian and Faith Lutheran Church. But 2,000 years later, we are still talking about Lois and Eunice because they were faithful women to raise these children, to raise Timothy in the faith of Jesus Christ. We call this grace, that in spite of an absentee father, Timothy somehow gets raised in the faith, and now all of a sudden Timothy is a leader in the church. Praise God for Lois and Eunice. Verse 6. And I think this, by the way, is the, uh, verse 6 is kind of the, uh, the theme of the entire book of 2 Timothy. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through, through the laying on of hands. This chapter, this verse is all about encouraging, laying on of hands. Once upon a time, we read in Acts 16, the Apostle Paul laid his hands on Timothy to pray over him because Timothy was going to be a leader in the church in Ephesus. And if you lived in Ephesus in ancient times, you're like, are you kidding me? That is like the most dysfunctional place on the planet. Ephesus was filled with prostitution. Ephesus was was filled with all sorts of church problems. Ephesus was filled with all sorts of false gods. And Paul looks at Timothy and says, you're going there. That's the church you're going to lead, Timothy. And he's like, I don't want to go there. And Paul says, we're going to pray hands, lay hands on you, and we are going to pray over you. Have any of you ever been a part of a, a church that's just really messed up? a church that's completely dysfunctional, a church that is completely broken down and there's bickering and fighting and arguing and things are just like, oh, I don't want to go to church. It's just, it's too stressful to go to church, right? That was Ephesus. And Paul said, Timothy, I'm sending you to that church, that messed up church. But we're going to pray over you. We're going to encourage you. And I love this language Paul uses. We're going to fan into flames the gift of God. I think in many ways that is my call here for many of you, for all of you, frankly, if you're part of this congregation. is My, my, my dream, my goal, my vision, uh, my purpose is to fan into flames. It's this idea of just encouraging you over and over strengthening you, setting the embers on fire so that you can do what God has called you to do. Unfortunately, many of us grew up in traditional church, and our idea of traditional church is the pastor does everything, and everybody in the congregation shows up and encourages the pastor, right? Hey, pastor, can you preach on Sunday? Pastor, can you write the devotionals? Hey, pastor, can you show up at the service thing? Pastor, can you teach confirmation? And the list goes on and on. And then every now and then, some people in the life of the church show up. That's not what church is supposed to be about. It's supposed to actually be the opposite, where the pastor is the one who encourages the folks in the congregation to do the ministry. I'm supposed to just fan into flames. I'm supposed to just show up and blow wind on all of you like this morning. 
And you got your, your welcome. And you guys are supposed to just come alive in the Holy Spirit. I love that imagery. See, I wonder if the most important thing we do here at Faith Lutheran Church is not this on Sunday morning. I wonder if the most important thing that we do happens after you leave as a church. That when you go home, when you go to those places and you're in relationship with others, your kids, your grandkids, those others in your neighborhood, in your community, that that's where you're going and you are serving. And that's where you're truly making a difference. We make a difference here on Sunday morning by gathering together. But I like to think of us more like an aircraft carrier. The battle is not here. The battle is in other places, and so you are all fighter pilots getting ready to take off to those places and go to battle in those places that you live in day in and day out. And this is what Paul is doing and encouraging young Timothy. Verse 7, for the Spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Now, why does Paul write this? For the Spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us uh, power, love, and self-discipline. I think it's because Timothy's afraid. Paul looks at Timothy and says, hey, you're not supposed to be timid. You are supposed to be bold in Jesus Christ. God has given you the spirit of power. Remember in Joshua in the Old Testament, three times in Joshua 1, we read these words, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. Why are these words written in Joshua? Because Joshua was weak and afraid, he was weak and afraid, and he was weak and afraid over and over and over. He needed to be reminded to be strong and courageous because we're fearful, right? You know, oftentimes when I ask people to do things in the life of the church, hey, would you be willing to do this? I don't know. Never been to seminary before, pastor. I don't know if I've got the gifts, the skills, the capabilities to do what you're asking me to do. I don't know. You're afraid. I understand you're afraid. I get it. But I think too often we make fear the thing that holds us back from doing ministry. We're so afraid to do the things that God has called us to do that we just want to have the pastor stand up there and do what the pastor does. Once upon a time, I was terrified to come and stand before you. Most Sunday mornings, I'm still terrified to come stand before you. (laughs) I just believe that God has given us a spirit of power, a spirit of boldness, a spirit of courage to do what God has called us to do. And God has given you, each one of you, that same spirit. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. What's the worst that could happen? You stand up here and mumble through the Lord's prayer, right? Or whatever it might be. I make mistakes all the time. You should come to my house for lunch sometime and listen to my wife and kids uh, critique my sermons. It's awesome. They're my humility crew. They keep me very, very humble. Keep my feet on the ground. And they're right. I mean, the truth is they're right. They're like, Dad, you repeat yourself all the time. I know. I repeat myself so that I can gather my thoughts for the next sentence. 
Sometimes I'll repeat myself again so I can remember what the next sentence is in my manuscript. So yeah, I repeat a lot because I'm a mess. I don't remember everything. But I believe God has given me the Holy Spirit and I believe God has given each one of you the Holy Spirit to not be timid, but to live in power, love, and self-discipline. Verse 8. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to live a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame. Because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul gets it. His role, his responsibility is to be a guardian of the gospel and this message of good news through Jesus Christ. He says, I am to be a steward, to be a caretaker of it. But guess what, Timothy? I'm getting ready to leave this earth. It's getting to be about ready for you to take over. It's time for you, Timothy, to take over. And it's not because you're smart. It's not because you're seminary trained. It's not because you're extraordinarily gifted. It's because you have the call of God on your life to do ministry. And I think as we change and invite ourselves to think about what it means to be Christ followers in the 21st century with all this baggage of growing up in the church, thinking our role, our responsibility is just to show up and support the church. Paul says there are better plans for you, more important and significant plans for you. Now you might be thinking this morning, that's great. You're a pastor. You do this stuff. You, you train for this stuff. You do this stuff week in and week out. But I want to remind you, for those of you who uh, know this and those who don't know this, I did not grow up. My father was not a pastor. In fact, some of the most influential people in my life were not seminary trained. They were not uh, extraordinarily gifted. Uh, they were not incredibly talented. They were just normal, everyday people like my mom and my dad. My grandparents, I had coaches who poured into me. I had teachers who poured into me. Being a leader in the life of the church and serving in ministry, that is a role and responsibility that each one of you can and I think you need to play. So I'm going to close uh, just with an illustration by how I think this uh, might work uh, a little bit living in, in today's society. It's football season. Anybody watch Packers this afternoon? Okay, a few of you. All right, any Bears fans here going to watch the Bears game? Okay, um, I'm, I think most of you know I am not a football fan. I, I typically just watch, keep an eye on the scores uh, to see what's going on. I know uh, I follow the high school scores. I follow some of the collegiate scores. I just kind of pay attention enough to know what's going on. Uh, several years ago when we lived in the southeastern United States, I watched college football. I actually watched college football uh, because if I would show up on Sunday morning and I couldn't talk about the dogs or the yellow jackets, nobody wanted to talk to me. 
So I kind of got uh, connected a little bit to college football, and I even got to go to the doghouse and kind of all that stuff, and it was kind of a thing. And so this morning, as we're thinking about what does discipleship look like, one of the uh, really famous coaches of uh, the Georgia Bulldogs was a guy by the name of Mark Richt. Now, he retired a couple years ago. He, for 15 years, he was head coach of the Georgia Bulldogs, three years with the Miami Hurricanes. Uh, he was an assistant coach for many years with, I think, Florida State, uh, and he was a pretty good coach. Had an incredible winning record. They won division titles. Uh, they won the SEC uh, championship a couple times. I mean, he was kind of a deal. If you live in Georgia, everybody knew Mark Richt and, you know, his, his uh, abilities as a coach. And then a couple years ago, he retired. And one of his football players, number 88, uh, wrote a tribute uh, to him on social media. A guy by the name of uh, R.D. Lynch. He was a tight end, I think, uh, for the Bulldogs. And this is what he wrote. And I just wanted to share this with you this morning. Uh, R.D. Lynch writes this. Now that he has retired, I don't think Coach Richt would mind me uh, sharing his story that perfectly illustrates who he is as a football coach and, more importantly, as a man. It was January 2011. Uh, we had just finished the season 6-7. and seven. Our final game, a loss to U uh, UCF in the Liberty Bowl. Coach Mark Richt called the team meeting, uh, which wasn't abnormal that time of year as we usually met as team go over second semester, class schedules, workout goals, etc. However, this meeting was surrounded by rumors that Coach Richt was offered another coaching job for more money at his alma mater, and we believed he was going to take it. Obviously, we wouldn't have blamed him due to the pressure of coaching in the SEC and the fact that he was on the hot seat. They had just finished six and seven on the year. Not great. And so as we sat down, uh, there was a single chair in front of the team meeting room, which was normally set up for anyone who wanted to share their personal story. Normally, it was for seniors, but we were all welcome to share. On that day, Coach Rick's turn was to speak his truth. We were expecting his farewell. But what we were given was most revealing and telling picture of who Coach Rick really was as a man. He explained that he wanted nothing more than to win a championship and finish his job here at Georgia. But that was not his sole purpose. His purpose was to raise each of us as if we were his own and fulfill the promises he made to our parents and loved ones. As he continued, he then asked those of us who had been raised in broken homes or without a father to raise our hands. Over half the room, including myself, raised their hands. He scanned the room. After a long pause, he said, See, my job is not just to win football games. It is to make sure that in 20 years, your sons are sitting in these seats and not raising their hands. My job is to mold each of you into good husbands, men and fathers, who happen to be great football players. There was not a player in the room who didn't want Coach Richt to be the man to bring UGA a championship. Against all odds, we won the SEC uh, East the following year. Each one of us who played for Coach Mark Richt is eternally grateful for his wisdom, guidance, and love that he gave over those years. He was an incredible football coach who never lost sight of what was most important about his job. That was the well-being of his players. Thank you, Coach. We love you, R.D. Lynch. 
Coach Rick uh, is a man of faith. He loves Jesus. And he was a very, very successful football coach. And I think he could have won more football games. But he knew that football was not what it was all about. And do you know, as Jesus followers, we can follow the ways of the world and be more successful in the eyes of the world. But that's not who God has called us to be. God has called us to live by different ways, to have different metrics, to to view the world through a different lens, to use whatever platform we have, whether it's coaching football or, or whatever you do in your day job, to be a platform to raise disciples of Jesus Christ in future generations. I think this story of Coach Richt is a beautiful illustration for all of us of what it means to leave a legacy, to be people whose influence and impact in Jesus Christ continues to live long after we are gone. So I want to close by asking you again, who are you pouring into? Who are you engaging in relationship? Who are you seeking out to pour into and to speak Jesus and to speak faith? Because if you're not doing that, I think we've got some work to do. And this is what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. You're going to hear me talk a lot about relational discipleship. The next few weeks, maybe even months and years, you might get tired of hearing relational discipleship. But this is how the church grew disciples in the early days. And I think this is how God is calling us to grow again as followers of Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, uh, first of all, for using um, such normal people, God, to proclaim your word to grow the church, to pass on the faith. God, thank you for the men and the women throughout Scripture, the the Loises and the Eunices, who are so faithful that here we are talking about them a couple thousand years later as people who poured into their kids, who poured into their grandkids so that future generations, so that we can know you. So God, it's our turn, like Paul says. It's our turn now to stand on the shoulders of people like Paul and Timothy, to stand on the shoulders of people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to stand on the shoulders of all those who have gone before us, to just ask ourselves, God, who do you want us to be? How can we live our lives today so the church tomorrow continues to grow and blossom and flourish? So God, fan into flames faith in our lives as we share the faith with the next generation, those around us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.